begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you tonight, we ask you to be present with us as we study your word, that you would give us that measure of your spirit that is necessary, that we could understand properly the words of the spirit as they are found in this book that we are studying, and that we would apply them properly to our lives. We pray that you would be pleased with our study and the way we put it to use, and that you would forgive us for so often either ignoring your word or having learned from it, failing to live in terms of that word. We ask that you would make us people who walk in the truth. We might set forth the character of our Savior, who is the, the truth himself. We thank you that we are not like so many that are left in the dark because they follow false faiths and false hopes in this world, but you have given us a light to our path in the scriptures and that we have the blessing of possessing these scriptures ourselves that we would not walk on in darkness. We pray that you would enlighten our lives then as we study and that you would receive praise and honor from our efforts. We also ask that you would forgive our sins because of the mercies of our Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, we're beginning a new chapter in Hebrews tonight, the third chapter of Hebrews, and so turn with me to that, Hebrews chapter 3, and I'd like to read for you, well, I think I'll read the first 12 verses, we're not going to get that far in our study, I'm sure, but that'll give us some idea of the uh, uh, way the author is beginning to launch into a new subject and show us the direction of his thoughts. Hebrews 3, beginning at verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, even Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also was Moses and all his house. For he hath been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by so much as he that built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by someone, but he that built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken. But Christ as a son over his house, whose house are we, if we hold fast our boldness and the glorying of our hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, even as the Holy Spirit saith, Today, if ye shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, like as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by proving me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was displeased with this generation and said, they do always err in their heart, but they did not know my ways. As I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest aptly there shall be any one of you, in any one of you, an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. And that's for the reading God's word. Up to this point in the book of Hebrews, the author of this epistle has looked at the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament prophets. He begins that way in chapter 1, 
He then turns in chapter 2 to the superiority of Christ over the angels of God. Briefly, he has considered the superiority of Christ to the high priest that the old covenant offered. And now he turns to the superiority of Christ to Moses. And so we begin Hebrews 3.1 and our consideration will be the relative position of Christ and Moses. Hebrews 3.1 Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, even Jesus. It's significant to me that the author calls the readers brothers. Because this epistle is characterized by admonition and warning to these people. Nevertheless, the author considers those who are hearing him as fellow Christians, as brothers in the faith. And the basis for that family intimacy, the idea of, uh, of calling upon them as those who are closest to him, at least religiously, members of his family, has already been seen in chapter 2, verses 10 and following. For it became him, that is Christ, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The reason why we are brothers one to another religiously is because we are first of all in salvation made a brother of Christ. He's not ashamed to call his people brothers. And because he took on human nature, because he became fully man and died for our sins, then we've been united to him. We've been made joint heirs with Christ, the Bible says. Well, if we are Christ's brothers because of our relationship to him, then that creates a further relationship with one another. And that's a brother-to-brother -brother relationship, or brother-to-sister, if we want to incorporate uh, both male and female um, considerations here. The author of Hebrews calls upon those whom he's going to exhort and admonish and in many ways rebuke brothers. But they're not just brothers. What kind of brothers are they? This is saying the text. Holy brothers. How are they holy brothers? Why are they holy? What does the word holy mean? Set apart. Exactly right. To be set apart means to, con to be consecrated. And so the author looks upon these people not only as his brothers in the faith, but as those who have been set apart by God. And those who have been set apart by God, he says, have a heavenly calling. God has called out to them, has put them in a certain path, has given them a certain direction and goal. They've been set apart to that heavenly calling. The goal of this calling is the perfection of heaven, not the sinfulness of earth. And the author of the call is God himself. And so in many ways we can see how it's a heavenly calling. Those that are being referred to are the called out ones then. 
those who are called out. Does anyone happen to know what the Greek expression is for called out, Joe? That's right, ekklesia. Um, to call out, ekklesia, that is to call out. The two, part, the two Greek words are brought together. Well, ekklesia, as you know from our English word ecclesiastical, refers to the church, the assembly of the saints. And so he is speaking of consecrated brothers in the Lord who constitute the church, the called out ones. The call that they have received is what Paul refers to in Philippians 3 verse 14 as the upward call in Christ Jesus. The upward call. Turn to Hebrews 11:16. We read, but now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We've been called to a heavenly homeland. So we have the upward call in Christ Jesus as summons to draw us to our heavenly home. In Hebrews 12, verse 22, this is called the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12:22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable hosts of angels. Now what happens if we despise this call? What happens if we reject this call from heaven, from God, to be drawn to heaven to live with him? If we reject that, it's going to bring perdition upon ourselves. And this is the theme of Hebrews 12, verses 25 and following. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not when they refused him that warned them on earth, much more uh, shall not we escape who turn away from him that warneth from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more will I make to tremble, not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as the things that have been made, that those things which are not shaken may remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may offer service well pleasing to God with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. Be careful. But you don't neglect the one who is called from heaven. Because if those who um, neglected the warning given on earth perished, how much more shall we who have been warned and called out to from heaven perish? Our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so there's a great deal of theology built into the opening of uh, chapter 3 at the first verse. The author says, My brothers, because we all belong to Christ, those of you who are consecrated, set apart, and partakers of a call that has come from God himself, a calling to heaven itself, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, even Jesus. Now that's an that's a, a imperative. That's an order. He says, Consider. I'm really uh, 
convicted more and more of how little uh, we who are 20th century Christians, especially late 20th century American Christians, uh, are willing to stop and consider things. You know, if we're told to go out and do something, we don't always do it, but we know what that is. Go do this, or, you know, believe the following. But how about consider? I mean, that's, a, that's a imperative, too. That's a command from God that we are supposed to meditate upon. We're supposed to think about it, to give fervent attention to something. And the author says, consider, reflect, and meditate upon this. Often in the Bible, that is what we are told to do. Look at Romans 6, verse 11. Romans 6, 11. Even so, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Here's an order for you to think in a particular way. <laughs> Reckon yourselves dead to sin. When I talk to people who have besetting sins that are depressing them, that they are feeling a, a sense of loss in the presence of, that they are defeated by these sins, and they can't overcome them, then they need to remember what Paul says, but reckon yourself dead to sin. Think of yourself as spiritually a corpse when it comes to doing those sorts of things. If you think the right way, that will help you to live the right way. So the Bible often tells us, consider things, reckon things in a certain way, meditate in a particular fashion. Um, look at Hebrews 2.9. We've already discussed this in a previous lesson. But the author there says, We behold him who has been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for everyone. We behold him crowned with glory and honor. When we live our lives, we have set before our minds, before our consciousness, a Savior that has been exalted. We have a victorious Savior, and we keep that in the forefront of our minds when we live our lives. Well, now we have another command. Likewise, in chapter 3, verse 1, Holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider... Fasten your attention upon the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, even Jesus. Does this surprise you a little bit? To see Jesus called an Apostle? It should. It's the only time in the New Testament you'll find it. It's the only reference in the New Testament where the term Apostle is used of Jesus Christ. Who can tell me what the word Apostle means? That's right. That's right. An apostle is one who is commissioned. He is sent. He's given a task and then you know, sent on his way to do it. This is what apostle means. Turns out that John's gospel repeatedly refers to Jesus as the one who was sent by the Father into this world. And um, I think it would be valuable if we looked at these passages in John's Gospel. So keep your finger in Hebrews, but turn back to the Gospel of John, and hopefully you'll be impressed with just how often, how repeatedly, 
this is the way Jesus refers to himself and John picks up and repeats for us in his gospel uh, John 3 verse 17 for God sent not the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world should be saved through him John 3 verse 34 for he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God John 5 verse 36 and following but the witness which I have is greater than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me and the Father that sent me he hath borne witness of me verse 38 ye have not his word abiding in you for whom he sent him ye believe not John 6, verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. John 6, verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he that eateth me, he also shall live because of me. John 7, verse 29. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. John 8, verse 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came forth and am come from God. For neither have I come of myself, but he sent me. John 10, verse 36. Ye say, say ye of him whom the Father sanctifieth and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said, etc. Okay, John 11, verse 42. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the multitude that standeth around, I said it, that they may believe that thou didst send me. In John 17, verse 3, we should have Julie Eifersbach recite that for us. She knows that from Sunday school work. Right. Um, that's impressive to me. I mean, that you go through the Gospel of John and over and over and over again, Jesus says, I'm the one who's commissioned by God. I was sent by God. I was sent by God. In fact, it is so persistent that if we had somebody in our experience who talked that often about how God sent them, God gave them this work to do, we might think they were a little um, uh, megalomaniacal, you know, uh, drawing attention to yourself and seeing yourself in such a grand light that Jesus very appropriately did. So Hebrews is the only place where Jesus is called an apostle but if you understand that apostle means the one who is sent, it's certainly not the only place where the concept is found in the New Testament because the Gospel of John takes it as one of its main theological themes. Because Jesus was sent by the Father, he in turn could send others in his own name. And therefore, Jesus is the first apostle. Jesus is 
the greatest apostle, and Jesus is the source of all other apostolicity. There's a word you can try saying a few times fast. Apostolicity. That is to say, all other apostles are apostles only as they trace their commission to Jesus Christ. Look at John 20, verse 21. John 20, verse 21 says, Jesus therefore said to them, again, Peace be unto you, as the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And compare chapter 17, verse 18. Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, As thou didst send me into the world, even so sent I them into the world. No one can be an apostle who is not sent by Jesus Christ. If you have not been explicitly commissioned by Jesus, then you're not an apostle. Does that have any implications for some of our Christian brothers today? <laughs> Movements around us? You've heard of groups that consider they still have apostles, right? Well, I'm going to tell you a couple things. One, if these groups claim that they have apostles, then we can challenge them first. Do you mean that Jesus has explicitly commissioned you to do this work that you are now doing? That usually makes most people fold. They mean apostle in some distant, uh, secondary, or subordinate sense. They don't really mean it in the full sense that the Bible uses the term. The second thing I want to tell you, though, is I have heard of some groups that will go ahead and claim, oh yes, that's right, Jesus appeared to me in my bedroom one night, and he commissioned me to be his messenger, and so yes, I'm an apostle in that, in the same way that the apostle Paul is an apostle. The Damascus Road experience of Paul is, you know, recreated in my bedroom late one night, and I usually want to know what they've been drinking and uh, what their state of mind is when they say those sorts of things, but... We need to understand that to claim to be an apostle is to make a big claim. It's not just a fancy title for a minister of some sort. To be an apostle means to be commissioned by Jesus because he is the apostle of our faith. He is the first, he is the greatest, and he is the source of all other apostolicity. Any questions? No? Well, what's the context? To whom is Jesus speaking in Matthew 28? Particularly speaking to the apostles, isn't he? Why do we then take it that the Great Commission applies to us? Not because it's spoken directly to us, but because the apostles are the foundation of the church. The apostles lead the church into the world to evangelize, 
and the church must do that but you see it's first and foremost an apostolic ministry remember how Jesus said to Peter and upon this church excuse me upon this rock I will build my church what rock? Peter the confessing apostle Peter is the spokesman for faithful apostles Jesus will build a church upon them Ephesians chapter 2 verse um, 20 the church is built upon the foundation of Christ who is the cornerstone but upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets okay so the church is to be an evangelistic church the Great Commission does apply to the church but it's first spoken to the apostles who are sent into the world to do this work. Okay, in Hebrew, we're never going to get off of verse 1 if I don't hurry up here. Uh, Holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, reflect upon, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. We've already discussed, um, in some measure, the high priestly work of Jesus Christ, and we're going to continue that theme later on in the epistle, so I'm not going to pick up on it right now for... Uh, extensive analysis but it's interesting to me in this verse that Christ is considered the apostle like Moses in a sense is also considered the high priest like Aaron you have in Christ a combination of the work of Moses and Aaron in leading the people you have the one who is the, the apostle the commissioned one as Moses was commissioned by God, but you also have the high priestly work of Aaron. Both of these combined in Jesus Christ. He is called the apostle and high priest of our confession. What does that mean? How is he the apostle of our confession? How is he the high priest of our confession? Well, in the same way that Indiana Jones is the hero of the story, hero of the story means not the hero over the story or in some way you know the, the hero who made the story what that means is he's the hero spoken of in the story Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession in the sense that he's the one we confess he's the one who within the Christian confession of faith plays the role of apostle and priest by the way, this kind of statement in the Bible ought to be embarrassing to those who downplay or those who despise a creedal Christianity, a Christianity that has a confession of faith. Um, more times than I'd like to count, I've had Christian brothers or sisters tell me that they have no creed but Christ. They don't need a confession of faith. They just have the Bible. That sounds so pious. It sounds, I mean, it's on the surface persuasive. We say, of course, we don't want man-made objects in the way. We just want Jesus and all his purity. We just want the Bible and all of its authority. Well, praise God, we do. That's right. Amen. But now tell me, what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? And the minute you try to answer that question without reading from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, whatever the last verse of the Bible is, the minute you propose to summarize the teaching of the Bible, you've got a confession of faith. 
You're saying, my faith is confessed in these words. You might say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. Well, fine, but that, you see, that's different from reading the Bible from cover to cover. That's a summary. If someone says, yeah, but it's taken right from the Bible, well, that's fine, too. But, you see, you got to get a little beyond that because every heretical sect in the world takes things right from the Bible. I mean, think about it. Mormons practice baptism for the dead. You say, okay, well, if anything is bizarre and weird, you can't justify that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see that Paul speaks of baptism for the dead. And they'll say, we take it right from the Bible. Well, their confession of faith, you see, is an interpretation of the Bible. It may be right or wrong. I think it's deadly wrong in this case. And our confession of faith is taken right from the Bible, but it involves interpretation. So summary and interpretation cannot be avoided when we speak of our Christian faith. And summary and interpretation is just what a confession of faith is. The author of Hebrews did not have this hang-up about creeds and confessions. He said that Jesus is, in fact, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The Christian confession, the summary of God's saving work and message. Jesus is the one who's the apostle and high priest. So it's good to have confessions of faith, although not all confessions of faith are good. Did I go by you too fast? It's good to have confessions of faith. But not all confessions, not all things calling themselves confessions of faith are good ones. Verse 2. We've been told to consider Christ, who in our confession is the apostle and high priest. Verse 2 adds, Who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also was Moses and all his house. The faithfulness of Christ as the high priest has already been noted. In our last lesson, in chapter 2, verse 17, you'll remember, Wherefore it behooved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And I, I told you what a, what a blessing, what a tender verse that is, to know that Jesus carried out his ministry with perfect fidelity. He's a faithful high priest. Author returns to that just now a few verses down in chapter 3, verse 2, who was faithful, but now the faithfulness is not as a high priest, but it's a faithfulness pertaining to his appointed work, his faithfulness as an apostle. More particularly, it is going to turn out to be a faithfulness as a steward over the household of God. In the verses that follow, we're going to get into a lengthy use of the figure of speech of a household. Moses and Christ as they relate to that house and or household. And here we're being told Jesus was faithful in his calling. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, lays it down as axiomatic. Uh, Paul says, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful. That's right. That's when a man is set over someone's house or property or family, if he's the steward of the house, the thing above all that he needs to show is fidelity to the one who commissioned him. And this is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Jesus is just that way. He was commissioned by God to be the steward over his house. 
and he's faithful in all of his tasks. Christ's main concern in life and in his conduct was to perform the work that God sent him to do. Turn to Hebrews 10, verses 7 and 9. We read of Jesus, Then said I, Lo, I am come, in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Verse 9, Then hath he said, Lo, I am come to do thy will. If you were to be asked the question, Why did Jesus come into this world? What was he commissioned to do, this one who was sent into the world? Well, the author of Hebrews here in chapter 10, by the way, he's quoting uh, Psalm 40, verse 8. The author of Hebrews says Jesus came into this world to do the will of God. Now, I don't know if you've paid attention to this in the Gospel of John, which we've already looked at tonight, because it over and over all tells us, uh, over and over again, tells us that Jesus was sent into this world. The Gospel of John stresses that Jesus never said a word that was not commanded by God his Father. I mean, this is awesome. This is overwhelming. Jesus, in every encounter, spoke the word that his Father wanted him to speak. And everything he did, he did what God commanded him to do. Every minute detail of his life was a fulfillment of the will of God. Let's see this. In John's Gospel, we'll begin at chapter 7, verse 16. John 7, verse 16. Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. A little bit of a paradox there. Jesus says, My teaching is not mine. But all the more, he says, It's the teaching of the one who sent me. John 12, verse 49. For I spake not from myself, but the Father that sent me. He hath given me a commandment that I should say, what I should say, and what I should speak. How about that? God commanded Jesus how he should speak and what he should say under these circumstances. In John 14, 10. Believest thou not that I am sent in the Father? Excuse me. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say unto you, I speak not from myself, but the Father abiding in me doeth his works. So Jesus says, My words and works are the Father's. And then John 17, 4. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. John 17, 26, finally. And I made known unto them thy name, and will make it known that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Excuse me, that doesn't look right, does it? That's what I have in my notes. We'll just skip that last one. It may be in that area, and I've got a typo. But nevertheless, in John's Gospel, we see repeatedly then 
how Jesus says, every word I speak, the Father commanded me. My teachings not mine, it's his. The conduct, my works, they're all the Father working in me. And so Hebrews is exactly right. Jesus was a faithful steward. In the commission given him by God, he fulfilled it with the highest fidelity. He was completely um, and utterly faithful to the commission of God. By the way, that's why he's worthy of our trust. The reason we trust Jesus is because he never once failed to do the will of God. If he did, then we just have, you know, one more fallible person leading people that are fallible like him, but not Jesus. He was faithful in everything God gave him to do. Um, I'm not going to dwell on... Oh, my, I can't believe this. I'm not going to dwell on... Um, <laughs> I just can't get over it. I, I get caught up in this stuff. I'm sorry. Um, the word appointed comes from a Greek word that could be translated made, poieo in Greek, and as you might expect, the Arians, those who did not believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ, seized upon this verse then as teaching that, um, let me read it to you the way it would be translated, who was faithful to him that made him. Jesus was faithful to the God who made him. And uh, those who argued with the Arians, the followers of Athanasius, tended to accept that translation but then argued against the interpretation of that translation, saying that obviously what was made was not the deity of Christ, but his human nature. He is faithful to the one who made his human nature. I want to suggest, though, that a much simpler route to take, and uh, probably more accurate route to take, is to translate the word, as most of your Bibles will have it, as appointed. The Greek word poieo can mean appointed, uh, an example of that is found in Mark 3, verse 14. I'd like to get a survey of uh, what your translations have. We usually have uh, four or five different translations in the room. So Mark 3, 14. Um, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the place of Toll, and he saith unto him, Follow me. Oh, wrong verse. I'm in the chapter that I told you. 3.14. And he, I have, appointed twelve that they might be with him. Now, who has something other than appointed? Ordained. Okay. Ordained twelve. What else? Appointed, ordained. Does anybody have he made twelve? It's the same Greek word that we find in Hebrews. You see, the word that he made twelve is an elliptical, or if you will, a shortened expression for made them apostles. He made twelve men his followers or apostles. But he made twelve. That's not difficult. When we look at it in Hebrews, we see that too. Uh, he was faithful to him that made him. Made him what? not made him, in the sense of created him, but made him apostle and high priest. And how did God make Jesus apostle and high priest? By appointing him to such positions. And so both theologically and uh, linguistically, I think we should see this 
as teaching that he was appointed by God. I'm not going to dwell on that because I doubt anybody here is tending toward Arianism. Okay, one more thing about this verse, though. The analogy, then, is drawn between Jesus and Moses. In Numbers 12, we've got to turn to, to Numbers 12 to get this right. Please turn tape over at this time. In Numbers 12, verse 7, we have the statement about Moses that the author of Hebrews is drawing upon. We read there, My servant Moses is not so. He is faithful in all my house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even manifestly and not in dark speeches. My servant Moses. Notice two things. That Moses is called a servant and secondly, he's said to be faithful in God's house. The author of Hebrews is going to make a great deal of that theologically. What we read in Numbers 12:7. There Moses is considered faithful in the sphere of his stewardship, in God's house, meaning the whole family of Israel. Moses is a faithful servant in God's house. And so the author of Hebrews says, Consider Jesus. In our confession, he's the apostle. He's the high priest. Consider him. He was faithful to him that appointed him, even as Moses was faithful in all his house. So at this point, Jesus is likened to Moses. But the author can't leave it there. Verse 3 then, he says, For he hath been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was faithful, Jesus was faithful, but Jesus is more honorable than Moses. Jesus receives greater glory than Moses. Why is that? Why is it that Moses and Jesus are not on a par? Why is Jesus superior? The author tells us, and I, I love this verse, he says, well, isn't it obvious that the one who builds the house has more honor than the house itself? I mean, how many of you look at the product of a carpenter's hands or an architect's hands or whatever it may be and think that that product is greater than the one who made it? It doesn't make any sense. The author is drawing on a real, you know, down-to-earth, obvious truth that the one who makes the house has more honor than the house itself. That's why Jesus is worthy of greater glory. Well, now let's draw this out then. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus is the one who makes the house of God. And that Moses is in the house, or is the house. He's part of the house. Moses is faithful, but as a servant who is part of the household of God, Jesus is the one who makes the house who is the son of the household and is appointed over it. So the author of Hebrews is going to drive home, you see, these contrasts between Jesus and Moses are very important. Christ is the builder of God's house. That's based upon two Old Testament texts which we need to read because they are wonderful in what they teach us and they help us understand the Christology of the New Testament. First of all, look in 1 Chronicles 17. 
First Chronicles 17 contains the promise of God to David. And we'll be reading verses 11 and 12, First Chronicles 17. And it shall come to pass when thy days are fulfilled that thou must go to be with thy fathers that I will set up, up thy seed after thee who shall be of thy sons and he, I'm sorry, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness away from him. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Who is this referring to? You say, well, it's obviously Solomon. When David will go to be with his fathers, when David will die, then the son of David will build God a house. And God will establish him on the throne of David. So there's Solomon, who was the king after David, who built the temple, right? Wrong. Solomon is only a limited foreshadowing or type of the one who is to come who will build God's house. Now, how do I know that? I mean, even in my reading, I tried to stress this. How do I know that Solomon could not fulfill this promise? Longevity, is that what you said? Or as it says here, I will establish his throne forever. There's going to be an eternal king who's going to build the house of God. Let's turn now to um, Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 6. Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. Zechariah, chapter 6, at the 12th verse. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh Jehovah of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of Jehovah. Even he shall build the temple of Jehovah, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. One is coming whose name is the branch. By the way, that ties in with the name Nazareth. Jesus is the one from the branch city of Nazareth. He will build the temple of Jehovah, and he will sit and rule. He will have royal splendor as the priest and king combined. Who's this referring to? Obviously Jesus. Remember how in John's Gospel... Jesus cleanses the temple. Religious leaders approach him and say, what right do you have to do this? Jesus says, let me tell you something. You destroyed this temple in three days, I'll build it up again. They said, hey, it's been 46 years we've been building this temple. What makes you think you could build it in three days? And then John adds parenthetically, of course, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Everything that the Old Testament temple represented is fulfilled in the New Testament in the body of Jesus Christ. He is the meeting place of God and man because he is the God-man. 
He is the presence of God among his people because he came to tabernacle among us, as John said. And so in his body, he is all that the temple represented. And Jesus said, destroy it, and I'll raise it up in three days. But now we think of the temple of God in broader terms than just the body of Jesus. Well, there's a reason for that. Because the Bible says those of us who are joined to Jesus Christ in faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are his body, aren't we? Aren't we the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians? And so if Jesus is the temple of God and in his body, and we are his body, spiritually speaking, then it should not surprise you that we come to be called the household or the temple of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter 2, 5. A well-known passage to you, I hope. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. You are living stones made up into a house of the Spirit. A spiritual house? The temple, of course. Ephesians 2, verse 21. In whom each several building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. And so you are the house of God, the habitation of the Spirit, those of you who are Christians. And in Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul speaks of us as the household of God. We are God's temple. We are God's house. We are God's household, those of us who belong to Christ. And so, the author of Hebrews is not just lightly or in some shallow way, you know, passing off this idea that uh, Christ has built the house of God. That is a central theme of biblical prophecy in New Testament theology. Christ came to fulfill the promise of the Old Testament that one would sit eternally on David's throne as king and priest, and he would build the house of God. Jesus did. He built the temple. And we are his body. We are the temple now. We are a spiritual house, the household of God. Well, the comparison drawn by the author makes Christ to be the builder of the house. What is Moses then? The author says here, For he hath been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by so much as he that builds the house has more honor than the house. If Jesus is builder, what's left for Moses to be? <laughs> Moses is part of the house. That's right. That makes Moses part of the same house of which we are members. The household of God includes not just us, you can prove that from the New Testament, but this is devastating, and in a minute I'm going to draw some conclusions that are going to knock, I hope, the socks off one school of theology that's popular today. This says Moses is part of the same house. The true Israel of God found in the New Testament church is a fulfillment of the shadow form of God's people found in the Old Covenant. 
the Israel of old, which was led by Moses through the wilderness, was only a foreshadow of the true Israel in the new covenant, which is being led to our eternal rest by Christ. And that's what all of chapter 4 is going to pick up on. We are the wilderness people of God because Christ is leading us to the promised land of heaven. And so what Israel went through in the old covenant is a foreshadowing of our situation in the new. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.6. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things, speaking of incidents in the wilderness wanderings, these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Isn't that interesting? We've just learned how God was not pleased with them. They were overthrown in the wilderness. But that was written for our benefit, upon whom the ends of the ages has come, the author says. These were written as examples for us, because we are likewise to see ourselves in the wilderness, pressing to the promised land. In Galatians 3:29, well-known passage that says, We are the seed of Abraham, who have faith in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 6:16 says we are the Israel of God. And so there is a genuine continuity between the old Israel and the new Israel. Together they constitute one people of God. The house of God comprises the saints of both the Old and the New Testaments. And I'll tell you the leading proof and illustration of that is that Moses is part of the house that Christ has built, of which we are members. And if Moses is in this house, then you dare not say, God has a plan for Old Testament Israel, and God has a plan for the church, and there the twain shall meet. Because lo and behold, they're the same group. Now what school of theology is being deep-sixed by that consideration? And I mean, I'm in that language very strongly, because you cannot overcome that. It's dispensationalism. Dispensationalism insists that you have a plan for Israel and a plan for the church. In fact, just this afternoon I pulled out Ryrie's book, Dispensationalism Today, in an effort to um, see how he deals with this. And repeatedly he makes the point, you know, you've, you've got to see the, the, um, the mosaic work of the law as one dispensation separate from, and he makes quite a point about, you know, that dispensation ends at the cross or the day of Pentecost, there's two ways of putting it, and then a dispensation of the grace of God for the church begins. But you see, the big problem with that is that according to the author of Hebrews, Moses is in the same church. Moses is in the same household as those who are Christians. And that's a mixing of dispensations, a mixing of uh, household orders, as the dispensationalists put it, that is not supposed to uh, take place. Well, I'll tell you why it takes place, because the dispensationalist has an artificial distinction, a separation between Israel and the church that is not a biblical doctrine. We are the Israel of God, and the faithful saints of God in all dispensations constitute one, not two, but one people of God. If you were going to divide it up into two people, uh, two peoples of God, 
I think the dispensationalists have it right if you were going to divide it up. You would have those who are in Christ and those who are in Moses. I mean, if you were going to do this, which is unbiblical, that would be what would come to mind. But what we read here is you can't do that because Moses is in our house. He is part of the house Christ built. And so this is a devastating blow to dispensationalism. Moses is part of the same church of which Christians are members. Joe, were you going to say something? Um, what you're going to say is that there is a... I've heard in dispensational circles that um, on the phrase um, apostles and prophets, they're trying to make that New Testament prophet. That's just so much nonsense. No, I think it is New Testament prophet. It is New Testament prophet? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to elaborate on that or do you want to read that? Um, Basically, if you look in the New Testament, you'll find the expression apostles and prophets used more than just once for those who are prophets of the New Testament church because they are bearers of revelation, the apostles as well. And it's on that revelatory basis that the church has been founded. In fact, if you will pick up my tapes on the modern tongues movement, that's a crucial passage that I talk about um, because prophecy is understood in the New Testament is tied to the apostolic office. Um, but yeah, we'll talk about that more later. And so, Hebrews 3, verse 3 says that the glory that belonged to Moses is surpassed by the, that which pertains to Jesus Christ. can't help but think of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the whole theme there is how there was a glory to the law, but that glory diminishes into you know insignificance in light of the glory that's in the face of Jesus Christ. You remember that Moses appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration? But it was Jesus who was transfigured, and Moses and Elijah are part of his glory, not vice versa. Hebrews 10.1 tells us that the law was a shadow of the good things to come. Moses had a glory, but it was a shadow glory. It is nothing in comparison to the glory that belongs to the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Interestingly, the Dead Sea community that we have referred to many times in the past in this study, the Dead Sea community expected a return of Moses as a messianic figure at the end of the age. And if the readers of this book are being tempted to follow that Jewish theology of the Qumran sect, uh, we see some evidence of that. If that's the case, that would explain why the author of Hebrews stresses the fact that Jesus is far superior to Moses. He's the only true deliverer. Obviously, the one who is the creator of Moses, the one who is the savior of Moses, the one who built the house in which Moses serves, is more honorable than Moses himself, whether you look at the person of Moses, the work of Moses, or the glory that he deserves. One more thing should be added. This figure of speech of a house you will find in the Dead Sea documents used for the elect people of God who have withdrawn from the ungodliness of the nation of Israel. They are called the house of God. The author of Hebrews knows how to drive his point home, I think. He says, you're interested in people who are the house of God. I'll tell you who's the house of God. Those who have been built by Jesus Christ. And let me just show you, as we end tonight, 
that consideration. Verse 5, it says, And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken. But Christ, as a son over his house, whose house are we? The Dead Sea community is not the house of God. We are. Moses was appointed to speak of things to come. Moses was not significant in himself. He was but a prophet of a greater day. Moses, you see, his whole commission was to bear witness to another dispensation, which is another refutation of dispensation, which we won't get into tonight. But Moses, you see, bore witness of Christ. What did Jesus say in John, the fifth chapter? You read Moses, you would know of me, because he bore witness to me. I tell you, the author of Hebrews is a brilliant fellow. I mean, he had the benefit of inspiration that we don't have. But I'm telling you, he knew his theology. And the more I study this book, the more excited I get about how many connections and background and depth there is to everything that he's telling us. Well, I thought I'd get through six verses or so with you tonight, and I didn't make it again. I'm sorry. I, get, I said I'm going to stop saying I'm sorry because I'm sorry that means I'm going to stop doing it. I don't really intend to stop doing it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, When we come back together in two weeks, I'll try to get uh, a little bit more under our, our belts. Do you want to ask any questions before we pray about this passage? The main point, practically, we've seen some theological applications, but consider Jesus, this one who is apostle and high priest. Consider him in his faithfulness and what that means to you and how he's worthy of your trust. Consider him as one who has far more glory than Moses because he's the one who built the house. Moses is only a member with us. It does, yes. And um, if I had been able to get further into the passage, I had uh, a, a note that I put away now about, um, I think it's the very next verse, it says, For every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. But you see, we've just learned that Jesus is the one who built the house. And so if the one who builds everything is God, then it's kind of like, don't you know how to draw the logical inference? Then Jesus must be God. Yeah, and that's an interesting application, too. If... Uh, if, if Jesus builds the house, then his work is not in vain. And uh, I guess that gives some post-millennial confidence about the building of the kingdom of God. It's not going to be in vain because the builder is the Lord himself. Good. Anything else? Joe, would you pray for us as we close? Father, we do thank you that the Lord kind to help and ask them that we can reflect on that with confidence that we can have the hope of um, eternity with you with all the things because um, our redemption is brought out by Jesus cannot fail and that uh, all the very concerns and all that are Christ go down to the answer to that. Uh, 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 uh,
we will get the hope of going farther the way that one would be protected for the present moment and making a trip to the next moment. Amen. Amen. Amen.